I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we get to chat with a marine biologist and conservationist. Plus, she serves a whale, I mean dolphin tail. (laughs) So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Hi, everyone. We are so, so, so excited that today we get to chat with Emily Cunningham on the podcast. Hooray! Emily is a marine biologist and award-winning conservationist, an ocean advocate, and the co-founder of Motion for the Ocean. She also, just today as we're recording this intro, won another award for Women of the Future. So congratulations, Emily. You are amazing and are our hero. So much so. Absolutely. <laughs> it was quite the fangirl moment to talk to yes. her. <laughs> I'm sad I missed the actual conversation, but I was so excited to catch up while editing and listening to Lindsay and Nicole's amazing chat. Emily also has a master's in marine biology and was appointed as a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society in 2022. She also has sent us a Commerson's Dolphin <laughs> Whale Tale that you can hear if you go back to our July episode, episode 56. And just watch out for my squeeing, because that happens (laughs) when we talk about commerce. (laughs) Before we jump into the interview, we also just want to take a moment to applaud ourselves, because last week, as you're listening to this, was our ninth anniversary. What? Wow! I am proud of us. (laughs) Yes, I'm proud of us too. I love you guys. Yay! I love you too. It's fun to do uh, things with people you love. It's true. And yeah. thank you so much to you, our listeners, for uh, being part of the Whale Tales community that's been going strong for nine years. Wow. Crazy, crazy times that we've had a website for that long. Yep. And there are so many stories. Indeed. <laughs> and now, a chat with Emily. Hello! Hooray! We are so excited to have our special guest, Emily, here. Hello, Emily! Welcome! Hi! I'm very happy to be here. We are so excited that you could join us, especially since we're dealing with time zone situations. We were just having a quick, before we started recording, chat about daylight savings time, or what were you calling it, Emily? British summer time. British summer times. We've navigated all of the time zones and time changes. I love the idea of British summertime and I might adopt that. Here. Um, and we're so, so excited to have you here talking about cetaceans. Yeah, wonderful to be here. And yeah, happy, always happy to talk about cetaceans. The, the challenge is getting me to stop. So yes, over to you. Well, we don't, you can talk for as long as you want. We won't stop you. Um, but can you tell us a little bit and our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work, the cetacean-based work specifically, although, you know, feel free to add whatever you'd like. Sure. Well, so my name's Emily Cunningham. Um, I'm a marine biologist and an ocean conservationist. So I've spent the past decade working on solutions to ocean challenges. So that's kind of everything from changing policy at a national level here in the UK and a local level, um, doing research, going on expeditions, um, developing projects, doing environmental education. Um, kind of in a nutshell, I really like the sea and I really like to talk about it. It's my kind of life mission to to recover its health as best as I can or inspire the people to do so. And um, most recently I was working on an expedition ship um, in Antarctica and in the Americas. And um, I'm now back in the UK, so I'm from England and I'm writing my first book. And I've been involved with cetacean research um, 
both here in the UK, in the Mediterranean Sea and in the Northeast Atlantic as well. So I've studied bottlenose dolphins um, in the Irish Sea. So that's the sea between Wales and Ireland. It's called the Irish Sea uh, here in the British Isles. And for that research, I used a technique uh, that I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with, which is called photo identification. So you take photos of the dolphin's dorsal fins and you can identify individuals using the patterns of scratches and notches um, on the fins and on their backs. Um, bottlenose dolphins are particularly feisty they like to fight and scrap between each other so that gives us a really nice kind of way of recognizing individuals um, and I compared the photos that I took and some catalogues that other researchers have put together all around the Irish Sea and I compared those to photos that were taken between 1989 and 1994 and a lot of those photos they were either actual photos but of course taken on a film camera rather than a digital camera which we're used to so those you know, it's on slides, you know, like one of the old kind of projector machines. Awesome. Um, and some of them weren't even photos. Some of them were drawings that people had done of the ones they'd observed from shore. So it was trying to see whether we could use those for research. And luckily, the patterns were so distinct on a couple of the individuals that we could conclusively you know, be confident that that was the same individual that had been there for over 20 years, bringing their calves back to that same bay and kind of looking at then how they used the wider Irish seas. It's not a huge sea, it's not, not particularly far, but, um, and so it was, you know, we found that lots of them hang out in the same places. Some, there's been a little bit of change, but mostly the ones that were hanging out together in the early 90s were still hanging out together in kind of 2010, 2011, which was nice, uh, nice to see. I looked at about 10,000 photos, I think, for my, for that. Oh my gosh. Project. And I was dreaming about fins. I literally would wake up in the morning and I was just, what were you dreaming about? Like, fins. Just notches in fins. And so I got to know all the dolphins by sight. So when I was out on the boat doing the surveys, they'd pop up and I'd be like, oh, hello, Graham. You know, hello, whoever. Yes, there was one called Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not the most employable skill, but it was fun, you know, to, to kind of, you know, get to know the dolphins and, you know, you know where they've been, who they're friends who they like to hang around with who, who their mother was you know that kind of thing so that was really nice to get to understand the population at that kind of level of detail um and then over time I've sort of got more involved in kind of genetics so uh, a different technique to study almost the same thing so who's related to who and um, how they use the space so I've been part of a team that's been studying the genetics of bottlenose dolphins in the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic um, our research is currently in the peer review process, so I, I can't share the findings, but they're super exciting. We found something we never expected to. And that's kind of why I love science. It's full of surprises. You go in with this hypothesis, you're pretty sure you're going to find it. That's you know what we expected to find was all the preceding research had suggested. And then you use this new technique and it tells you something completely different. And um, so obviously I'll share that when when I can. Um, well, we'll just have to have you back well, on. That's the, so stay tuned here, folks. <laughs> and you know, I think I'm, you know, super passionate about engaging people with ocean science and ocean conservation and people from kind of all backgrounds because, you know, we have got an inclusion problem. It is a very kind of niche part of society that engages with science and the protection of the ocean. And I think one of the tools we can use for that is citizen science. So we're non-scientists collect or analyze data as part of kind of wider science projects and um, so I've done a lot of work on how we use citizen science in cetacean research and it's been integral to some work I did on humpback whales in the UK as well oh my 
goodness, Emily. I feel like I have about a million <laughs> questions from just that couple of minutes synopsis of what you've been doing uh, for your studies. But the one thing that really sticks out to me when you were talking about the illustrations mm-hmm. of dorsal fins, that boggles my mind mm-hmm. because I know you're not the, the first or only mm-hmm. person to, to look at that. I just think, no, I'm, I'm not a particularly great sketcher. And so I acknowledge this, but I just think of how hard it already is to identify any cetacean, mm-hmm. even cetaceans with like really excellent ID catalogs yep. by sight when you can compare to a digital photo you've just taken. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe as with many things in technology, I think our brains have just gotten less productive mm-hmm. because that's now something that we can like, we don't have to have a photographic memory. Yep. We can just have a photo and I think of what how hard it must have been for people to see an animal that you're only seeing at the surface for a few yep. seconds sometimes and then to be able to sketch that for an ID purpose that's crazy yeah, I love it that's and so it's cool. almost you know it's citizen science before we'd even kind of collared the term citizen mm. science these were just local residents from a place in Wales where they were seeing the dolphins coming and they had a hunch that um, they were the same ones and they noticed just through their binoculars. I mean, sometimes the dolphins come so close to shore, you don't need binoculars, yeah. but so they just drew them and uh, said, you know, we think that this is the same one coming over time. And, you know, this was a time when photo identification was very new. So a lot of the research that was kind of cropping up in other places around the world, which we, I guess, take for granted that it's this well-known technique now, but then pre-internet, you know, unless you were a researcher who went to the conference and heard that other people in other countries were doing it, how would you know? And these local residents in the little village in Wales certainly weren't researchers. They didn't know what they were doing was photo identification. They just saw dolphins, they sketched them, and then some researchers worked with them and actually we managed to find, I mean, they were incredibly useful, that resource, you know, what a fascinating thing that exists because if it didn't our data would have started years and years later. Emily would you mind sharing with us a little bit about sort of like your background in terms of how you got started in this because I can certainly for myself say and I'm sure our listeners are feeling the same way you seem like a bit of a superhero (laughs) to me and (laughs) I'm so envious and (laughs) inspired by everything that you've done. I'd love to know uh, how you got started. Yeah so I'm I'm actually from the middle of England. Um, I know England's not very big but it feels pretty big when you're you're from a small town um i mean in in england you're never more than 70 miles from the sea but 70 miles is a really long way when when you're a child um and i grew up um i'm the first person in my family to go to university i don't come from a a particularly like well-to-do background i'm what we'd call working class here in the uk um and um when I was little, we didn't go on holidays really, but my auntie and uncle lived at the seaside. So we'd go and visit them in the summer. And that was how I got to go to the seaside. And um, my dad and my uncle would take us out in the evening down to the beach. And um, I think mostly just to give our mums a bit of peace and quiet. <laughs> and we'd be allowed to sort of run free on this beach. And it was just the happiest moments of my childhood because I just found it fascinating what was living in the rock pools, kind of the birds that were around. And the place we, we went actually ended up being a really important wildlife site, but obviously I had no idea about that when I was a child. It was just this cool place where I got to run around with my cousins and look at squiggly things in rock pools. 
And um, that's kind of where this interest in the sea came about. And I remember mentioning it to my auntie. And uh, she said, oh, I've got a CD-ROM that you can look at. CD-ROMs. Obviously, you didn't have the internet. You either found out information from your parents, your teacher, the library, or CD-ROMs. Like, yeah. There was no other way to gain information. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a CD-ROM about endangered animals. And I remember sitting for hours playing on this CD-ROM on their computer. And being like, oh my gosh, look at like, what's a manatee? Like, what is it? What's a whale? You know, you know, all these things. How would I have ever known that they existed? And so that same auntie, a bit later, I'd said I was so interested. She said, well, you could become a marine biologist. What is a marine biologist? That sounds amazing. And um, she took me to the university that's near there in North Wales and knew where they lived and said this is a university where you study marine biology and she put that in my brain I was probably about eight and um it from there I was like well that's what I'm going to do I'm going to be a marine biologist I want to learn about what lives in the sea somebody's told me I can do that as a job so I'm going to see if that's true and kind of all the way through my teenage years my very well-intentioned teachers told me that I should aim for a real job because mm. marine biologist wasn't a real job um and I just sort of had this feeling of sure surety sureness I don't know in my in my stomach that this is what I wanted to do with my life and so I just persevered blindly and <laughs> went to university and studied marine biology and kind of had my my little mind blown whilst I was there at, at you know, how little we know about mm. the marine environment how much incredible stuff there is in the UK like I didn't really know that at the time I thought I'd have to go to somewhere like Florida or whatever where the dolphins lived I didn't know there was dolphins in England in Wales <laughs> and um and I think I just that process of learning how much threat the ocean is under I was like, that's what I want to work on somehow I want to find out how I can um help protect the ocean and um you know I think from that kind of I guess origin story has made me realize that lots of people don't don't know what is on their doorstep don't realize that they can get involved in its protection and so my work's kind of evolved to be one which is engaging as many people as possible in in ocean conservation through kind of various means and that's not just uh you know those of us who live near the coast it's people like me who grew up in land and also kind of politicians and businesses and i think it's everybody's responsibility to take action for the ocean that's amazing it's very Lots of um, stories about becoming marine biologists have a lot of similar aspects, but, but like the uh, teachers telling me it's not a real job, that's definitely something I got. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, it's well-intentioned, you know, they they mean it with, 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 you know, good intent. And it is, you know, I, I can say two things with complete certainty. One, it is a real job, you know, <laughs> I have been, been paid to do this for 15 years now, you know, I'm sat in a house that I own because I did this as a job, but it is incredibly competitive. It's not an easy career path. It's non-linear. It's hard. Um, so, you know, much as I encourage people, it is a real job. It is a difficult one to, mm -hmm, to pursue sure. as well. That's the part when you are being told it's, you know, the well-intentioned teachers or the well-intentioned people in your life I think that's the part that you don't always have your eyes wide yeah. open for because it does seem shiny and it does seem exciting and it does seem like we I'm gonna play in the ocean mm -hmm. especially i that's you know my personal experience coloring it when I was like five and six years old being like that's what I'm gonna grow up mm -hmm. yeah sure, sure dear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that you share not just the the positive and exciting parts mm -hmm. only just like yeah it's really really hard but it's also really really worth it yeah thank you I think it's the thing I try and get across to people is although it's not easy and 
it's it's worth it overall and it's often not worth it in the way that I set out thinking it would be worth it yes you have these incredible highlight moments you know the things you put on Instagram where you're you get to see an orca or you get to see you know whatever and that is incredible and I you know always work to make sure I don't forget my privilege in that what I'm getting to see but actually it's those moments where you know you've kind of created change where you've managed to flip the Mm. mindset of a politician or you've been the one that's made it so that group of children get to see the sea for the first time like those are the most rewarding bits but you know the reality behind that is that's probably two percent of my time and 98 percent is sat at this desk (laughs) (laughs) typing away or what you know all the things that come with with this role yeah uh, so speaking of things that you didn't know were in the UK, and I kind of probably didn't really know either for a long time, tell us about the humpbacks work that you've been doing on doing with your ID matches and just UK humpbacks, really. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to start with a little whale tale mm, about this topic. Yeah. So um, in January 2018, I was I was sat at my desk uh, working and I, what working, I saw a post on Facebook, so I was probably skiving <laughs> off my work. Um, so I posted on Facebook that a humpback whale had been seen in the Firth of Forth, which is the body of water next to Edinburgh in Scotland. And um, the sight that a sighting of a humpback whale had happened in itself wasn't entirely rare. You know, we get the odd sighting of humpback whales off the east coast of Great Britain, so kind of the North Sea coast, um, in the winter time. Um, but they're normally gone as fast as they arrive. So it's one person yeah. out on the boat or on the shore spots a whale and then it's gone. But over the following days, more posts kept coming on Facebook saying the whale was still there, stuck around. They're getting really good views from from shore. So I think this was about probably Thursday evening or Friday morning. And I convinced my partner, Daniel, that we should get up at 4am on the Saturday morning <laughs> to drive to Scotland to try and see the whale. Because I'd never seen a humpback whale in UK seas before. I've been lucky enough to see them in Canada, but I'd never ever seen one at home and I was like, I really really want to see this so we did get up at 4am we drove all the way to Scotland um and I'd seen online the best place to see it was from this little car park on the coast so we drove to this car park and it was full full of people <laughs> trying to see the whale um it was an incredible atmosphere you know this real kind of buzz of wanting to see the whale um, the rain was absolutely constant it was January it was freezing cold and so probably about a hundred of us stood for about eight hours in the rain, oh. <laughs> watching some grey waves, hoping that we might see a glimpse of the whale. And um, got dark, no whale. So I was like, well, we better stay overnight. We've come all this way. We should try again tomorrow. So we got up early the next day, went back to the same car park, sat for about five hours. And I could see Daniel saying, you need to go home. It's a long way home. We've got work tomorrow. I was like, oh, I can't, I can't have come all this way and not seen, not seen the whale. And um, I was pretty much resigned to the fact that we'd failed. And then somebody shouted, whale! And so it was just that, you probably know what I mean by this, but you, I get this sort of happy dance-itis mm, when yep. I see a whale. This yep. <laughs> just flows through my body and it's like trying to get out. So I sort of jump up and down and I'm like, ah, and, you know, it's just so intense. It happens with birds, it happens with yep. dolphins, it happens with whales. And um, so like there's loads of people pointing out towards, you know, these gray, it was really windy, really choppy sea. And so I put my my um, binoculars up and I'm scanning and I'm scanning. And, and then I just saw, it was at least a mile away, just this tiny, <laughs> thin, the you know, unmistakable humped back of a humpback whale. And it doesn't sound like much, but it was probably my favorite whale encounter yeah. because it was at home. You know, it was 
in the place that I know. You know, the town I was in Scotland is where my grandpa used to work as a miner. You know, that's where my family's from. It was really, really special that it was kind of that connection to me rather than this thing I had seen on holiday necessarily. And um, although getting to see it was incredible, kind of what happened after, after I went home was even more remarkable. And I've been chatting to some people in in the car park and um, they're all kind of just local people who were really excited about the fact, the fact that the whale had come to the Firth of Forth. And they were saying, is there a way that we can try and identify the individual? And I said, well, yeah, you just need to try and get a photo of the fluke of the whale and then we can try and match it on, on Happy Whale or we can try and see, you know, in the various catalogues that exist. But most of the sightings were a mile away, you know, it was really far out hunting and in, in, we think feeding um, in the fourth. And um, so I we worked with this local community group to try and get photos and sightings of the whale and just the generosity of people's time and generosity of you know people going out specifically trying to get the photos of the flukes. Um, and somebody did. So people got good enough photos. I mean, they're they're not, not going to win any photography prizes, but they did an incredible job of getting these photos. And luckily, the the whale markings were so distinct that even with not the best photos, we could identify them and realise that actually it was two different whales, oh. not one whale. So that was super cool. And we found that one of them, so out of the blue, out of the woodwork, because we started talking a lot about this on social media, somebody said, I took a photo of a whale last year. Do you want to see it? And we turned out it was the same whale. So it had come back two different years, which made us think that it was possibly an intentional return rather than it was lost or it had just stumbled across mm. that place, like it had come specifically back to that place. And one of the whales stuck around for two months, mm. which is, that's new, you know, before they normally just come through, maybe a couple of days at most, but it was there for two months in total. It seemed to be feeding, it seemed to be behaving, you know, there was no kind of red flags on how it was behaving and then one day it just disappeared went on its way and um and that was that and then one of the photos that somebody managed to take that was the kind of the best one a guy called sandy morrison he um he gave us this photo and another member of the community she spent literally hundreds of hours trawling photos of humpback whales because we hadn't found any matches in unhappy whale there was no matches in any of the established catalogues and you know, i spoke to researchers and all countries around the North Atlantic are speaking to researchers in the US, just in case it was a lost whale, researchers in the Caribbean, no matches to either of the whales. And then um, a local hairdresser, her name was Lindsay, she managed to find a match on Facebook that somebody else had put up of the same whale. She, I mean, she literally looked at thousands of photos. Oh my God. And that was the picture of the whale that had been taken in Svalbard, which is up in the Norwegian mm. Arctic. And that's the first time that anybody's ever matched a UK whale to the Arctic feeding grounds. So obviously we knew that they go to the Arctic to feed, or assumed they go to the Arctic to feed, but exactly where we didn't know, people assumed they probably just went as far as Iceland, but this one was 4,000 kilometers away from Svalbard. And that was the first match that, that we had. Um, and we, myself and my partner Daniel and our friend Kate, we, we wrote up the findings as, as a paper and um, we we suggest, this is kind of our working hypothesis, is that the UK might act as kind of like a service station or a rest mm. stop for humpback whales when they're on their migration. Uh, so they feed in the summer up in the, the Arctic, so Iceland all the way up to kind of northern Norway, Svalbard, and then they migrate 
either to the Caribbean or to Cape Verde, which is an archipelago off Africa. So we're kind of at this funny crossroads between how they move within the Atlantic Ocean. But we wonder if these are either whales that are just stopping off, feeding, resting before they continue, or maybe they're juvenile humpback whales who don't need to make that full journey mm. yet because they're not sexually mature. So they're just hanging out in Scotland because there's food and why not? And then they'll carry on back to the Arctic when it's not uh, not quite so inhospitable. So there's more research to be done. We we managed to get some really good media coverage of this. I think people really latched onto this idea of service stations or rest stops or whatever. Yeah. That, you know, the whales are popping into Scotland. Um, and year on year, we're seeing more and more humpback whales in the UK. A couple of years after um, the, the whales in Scotland, there was a few that hung out in Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, which are in southwest England. Um, again, same time of year, kind of January time. And so there's kind of two hypotheses. One is that this is good news, a sign that the population is recovering after the end of commercial whaling, or bad news that because of climate change, shifts in food availability, maybe changes that we don't fully understand yet, they're being pushed out of places that they used to go. Um, could be one or the other, could be a bit of both. Um, but as with most science, it's created more questions necessarily yeah. <laughs> than answers. But you know, no matter what, it is awesome that people in the UK, both Scotland, down in, in, in southwest England, have more chance now than ever before kind of in living you know in our lifetime our parents or grandparents lifetime of seeing a humpback whale from the coast you know they come very close to shore which is an incredible experience for for anybody no matter how many times you've seen whales it's it's still amazing when you get to see a whale so um that community group continues to this day to collect sightings information not just of humpback whales but of um you know of the dolphins and minke whales and different different cetaceans that come closer to shore and they provide a kind of great resource for anybody who wants to learn how to spot cetaceans, but also all of those sightings are an incredible resource for scientists. So um, to all listeners, please do contribute your sightings and photos of cetaceans to local citizen science programs wherever you are in the world. I mean, we collected all our data off Facebook. So there really is a use for your sighting, mm -hmm. um, no matter where and how, or how insignificant you might think it is. It's not, they're really useful to us. Do you have, like, is there a place where people can go to look at this stuff or submit if they are in the area? So um, it's different ones all around the world. For the UK, um, Sea Watch Foundation is a really great resource. In um, Shorewatch in Scotland, it's also great. Um, if you're in doubt, you can always put it on iNaturalist. That's always a great yeah. place to just collate sightings of anything. And if you have photos of the flukes of whales, then Happy Whale is the place to upload those. Yeah, no, that's great. We've got a list on our website that it's out of date, but we've got some on there that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, <laughs> So people can take a look. And again, if anybody knows any other ones that are not listed, just email us and I'll add them to the list because I would love to spend my time adding updating this page. But if I don't have that time at the moment. Um, <laughs> that's, that's citizen science, right? Exactly, yeah. Know where, exactly. <laughs> where these are. So. Um, one question yeah. I did have about the why they're coming back. So what is the mm. history of whaling and like you know the uk they probably have lots of history of sightings from olden times past the past <laughs> um, yeah. so do we know if there was populations around 
You guys, before we killed them all? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. No, and it is a really good question because actually when when I, when I we started, you know, that day that I went to see the whale, my I thought that this is just a recovery. It's just coming back. And then one day, I don't know, I was doing something, gardening or something, and just had this thought. I was like, is this based on just a massive assumption that they were here in the first place? Mm. Where's the evidence? Everybody talks about the recovery and obviously at a at a global scale we're seeing a recovery and a recolonization of places but where's the evidence base for scotland and the firth of fourth so i spent a lot of time looking in historic records contacting stranding organizations looking through old newspaper archives you know you name it anything that i thought could could help understand whether there had been humpback whales there before um obviously data is patchy and the fact that there's not much data doesn't mean that they weren't there it's just Mm -hmm. we didn't record things in the same way um, there was a couple of records of strandings, but very, very odd strandings. Um, and when there were strandings, it was all over the news because it was such a big event. So it led me to take the assumption that if they had been there, it would have been reported. And these were, you know, mm-hmm. that's still fairly recent history in terms of how, yeah. you know, the fact that there were newspapers. Um, you know, there's even when you look in kind of folklore and folk songs, sometimes there's there's songs about whales so like in Ireland for example we can know that they were there because they feature in folk songs from that time but I couldn't find anything similar for Scotland and then we found some archaeological evidence of some whales but they couldn't prove which species of whale in northern Scotland and so the that kind of led us down the line that it's not just a straight they've come back to where they were before Mm. that there is some kind of change happening it's difficult to say with certainty what exactly that is but you know there is changes in the ocean ecosystem there's you know probably climate driven um in terms of of when they're coming and how many of them are coming yeah. back but um yeah it's not as you know there wasn't loads we hunted them they're now coming back yeah it wasn't as straight we did whale we had lots of whaling um you know there's whaling communities all along the east coast of, of great britain but mostly they went kind of further out switching gears maybe a little bit can you tell us what motion for the ocean is i can so uh motion for the ocean is an initiative that i co-founded um with two other marine scientists dr pamela buchan who's a social scientist and nicola bridge who's a kind of expert in ocean literacy and so engaging people with the ocean and um it's well it's a little bit like you heard of the climate emergency declaration it's like that but for ocean recovery so it's where we ask local governments so councils or municipalities to make a pledge saying that we recognize that they need to take action for the ocean and they're kind of making this public commitment that they will take action for the ocean and so what we developed is it's kind of a blueprint for action so it's the things that are within the power of a local government at all levels all the way from kind of town to county in the uk um and they can adapt that to their local situation so it's things around tackling pollution improving access to the ocean improving kind of waste policy planning policy kind of everything that a council does has an impact in some way or the other for Mm. better or worse on the ocean and but unfortunately at the moment not many of them are thinking ocean in how they go about their decision making and because most ocean challenges start on land we need to make sure the solutions to those challenges come from land as well and we often look to national government to fix things you know most of us spend a lot of time you know shouting at national politicians Mm. to do better 
but local government have a, a really unique and important and essential role to play as well. And so we created this kind of this blueprint. We worked with lots of other scientists. It took us about a year to develop something we felt was right. And then um, Plymouth City Council, which is a council in, on the south coast of England, they were the first to, to pass. So they made an ocean recovery declaration in November 2021. And since then, 18 more councils have, have passed our, wow. um, our wow. declaration. So they represent 3 million people in total. Um, they are at all levels, all the way from like town and parish. So, you know, really the smallest level of, of local government, all the way up to county, city, kind of, you know, representing lots and lots of people with lots of challenges. And um, it's not just councils at the coast. So we originally had thought, oh, we'll reach out to all the coastal councils. So I was working, my job then was working with 57 councils around the coast of England to try and be better on kind of coastal policy and practice. And then a council from inland got in touch and said, well, what about us? Can we do something? And I was like, I love that you're ahead of us. Like, this is great. Oh, yes. And so my colleague Pam um, worked with a, a town council down in Dorset, which is on the south coast of England. And they developed an inland model for motion fish, which takes this kind of source to sea approach, recognizing that what you do inland has as much impact on the sea as those mm. communities on the coast. And it kind of made me realize that in my practice as an ocean conservationist, it had been always expecting the people at the coast to to solve these problems when actually they are the recipients of a lot of these problems. They get handed the burden of taking care of the yeah. ocean. And actually they're inheriting so much of those problems, pollution, uh, you know, plastic visible pollution and chemical pollution all down the rivers that flow, you know, from flow into the mm, sea. Yeah. And so we then kind of developed an inland you know, we kind of took what that the town council in Dorset had done with Pam, and then we made a kind of specific inland model motion. And then this summer, I've been working with lots of councils in the Midlands, so the middle of England, which is where I'm from. Um, and uh, we've had the first one, first very inland council, so they're right in the middle of England. They they made a passed the motion for the ocean a couple of weeks ago. Oh, so amazing. for me, that's a really significant moment that these, with all the challenges that councils face, you know, in terms of you know the the, well, the challenges that society faces and therefore the council have to try and deal with that they recognize that ocean health is a significant one to dedicate time and capacity to yeah. when you're an inland council as much as if you're you know one on the coast so i went along to the debate for that one i don't get to go to all of them because it's you know i'm a volunteer i'm self-funded in that role i you know can't go everywhere but i thought i'm going to go to that one because that's massive and listening to these councillors from across the political spectrum saying this is something we have to do. I was just like, things are changing. Mm. <laughs> there is hope, you know? Um, so we, we've got 19 so far in, in England and Wales, one in Wales, so 18 in England, one in Wales, uh, talking to people in other countries. So talk to people in Ireland, but I would love for it to go beyond the British yeah. Isles. Um, and so um, I'd love to work with people in other countries to translate kind of our, our idea to local context, local circumstances. So if any listeners thinking, oh, this is something I'd like to do where I am in the world, um, you can search hashtag motion for, like a number four, motion for the ocean, or you can send me an email. I'm emily at emilycunningham.co.uk, or you can find me on, I think you'll probably link me on social media, but please do get into touch. I'd love to work with people to try and make, take this elsewhere because we're really seeing that it can have genuine impact, even just in the sense of making counsellors and council staff recognize and realize and then recognize that they have this ability to 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 influence ocean recovery that's amazing 
Uh, before we continue with the rest of the episode, we wanted to take a moment to tell you about how you can support our podcast and everything we do at Whale Tales. You can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash whaletales. For a dollar a month, you can join at the porpoise level. For $5 a month at the dolphin level. Or for $10 a month, you can become a whale level patron. And each level comes with a variety of perks, including polls, thank you postcards, access to extended interviews or stories with guests, producing your own fun flipper fact segment of the pod, and for our $5 and $10 patrons, a brand new perk... We are starting Journal Club for Patrons! <laughs> Yay! So our whale and dolphin level patrons every other month will get special advanced access to a Journal Club episode that may or may not become a regular feed podcast in the future. But if you like research and you want to be in the know and hear about articles as we are reading them and discussing them join as a whale or dolphin level patron and get sneak peek access to all of our journal clubs as they come up every month and every two months and on the other months where there's no journal club our whale level patrons also get access to our special ten dollar patreon level podcast whale tales watches where we discuss movies or television that feature cetaceans or marine life and then we discuss our thoughts on them and how well they did with science it's not good usually um (laughs) our latest episode was orca which was an experience that happened and coming up next month will be more exciting uh we'll be doing ring of endless light which is much better in my opinion Although I do have to say our Whale Tales Watches episode on Orca is significantly more entertaining than the, the movie, movie Orca. Yes, so if you're ever true. curious about the movie Orca, we can tell you because we've seen it. Don't watch it. Yeah. Listen to us instead. Yeah. Way better time. Way less traumatic. I agree. Thank you so much to all of our patrons at every level. You are amazing. If you aren't able to support us financially, there's still lots of other things you can do to help us out that we really appreciate. You can leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This will help other people find the podcast. And you can also just tell your science and cessation podcast-loving friends all about the podcast so that they can listen along too. You can also follow us on social media at whaletales underscore org. Plus, send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. Okay, so I think we're going to move into the fun part. Maybe, I don't know if Nicole's going to do a song. She's in the office right now. (laughs) I am in the office and other people can hear me. Um, But I can't disappoint our listeners. Apologies to anyone else who can hear me who has no context for what's about to happen. But it's time for Fun Flipper Fact with Emily. Emily, can you please share with us your favorite fun flipper fact of all of the facts that you have in your head? <laughs> I think so. My yeah, my fun flipper fact is that um, dolphins will play with people when they've not of their own uh, choice, no training. Wild dolphins. Um, this happened to me out on a survey. Some dolphins approached the boat and they threw a jellyfish at me. Um, I was incredibly confused as to what had just happened. And luckily, somebody on the boat had experienced it before and they were like, oh, they want to play with you. 
And then your kind of scientist brain is like, what is the ethics of playing with the wild animal? Yeah. I'm not really sure what you do in this situation. I nudged the the jellyfish again. That's an, that's an animal. I don't know how I feel like this. Back into back into the sea, and then the dolphin threw it back onto the boat and wanted to play with me. And I think that that you know we talk about the intelligence of dolphins, mm-hmm. the, the sentience, all of those things. Um, but that play is something that is you know between species is pretty cool. That's adorable. So great and not where I thought that story was going at all. (laughs) Also, just for the sake of safety, what species of jelly was it? So we're pretty lucky that that most of our jelly species are fine to to handle. Um, I think it was a compost jelly. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, that Uh, story could have gone differently. Yeah, very much. Yeah. So, yeah, please don't go and throw jellyfish at dolphins. uh, Any (laughs) listeners. Very important. And where was that? That was in the Irish Sea. Again, that was in a boat off the coast, uh, some, probably halfway between Wales and Ireland. Um, and these dolphins appeared out of nowhere and, and wanted to play. That's cool. Yeah, because Nicole and I have not playing, but definitely more intimate interactions with dolphins. But they were both in WA uh, with the Indo Pacific mm-hmm. bottlenose. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Um, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of cetacean stories. Do you have a whale tale you want to share? I know in July, you sent us your amazing Commerson story, which was very exciting. Um, but do you have anything else? I squealed because I love Commerson. She gets really loud when Commerson's come up. <laughs> They're just so cool. They are. They are. They're just fascinating little bottle rockets. I love them. Yeah, I love them so much. They just don't. I, yeah, I'm going to. I'll start going yeah, supersonic. No good so for a podcast. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do have a, another whale tale that I, I would love to share, um, which is probably my favorite ever encounter with a cetacean. Um, it was actually with river dolphins in Cambodia. And um, so I went to Cambodia when I was 19. Um, I just booked a flight in my summer holiday from, from university. I'd worked two jobs all year and I knew I wanted to go somewhere that wasn't England. And so I ended up going to Cambodia with my, my partner, Daniel, who's, who's still my partner. And um, we, we'd read in our guidebook that you could see river dolphins at this place in Cambodia. And so we um, decided we'd go. It was kind of off. We'd done a little bit of independent travel, but at 19, you know, it's all, it's all mm-hmm. very overwhelmingly epic and so the journey to get to where the river dolphins were was supposed to just be a couple of bus rides that added up to about 10 hours the last bus never showed up and so the bus the company said oh we'll put you in a taxi to get you to where the river dolphins are the taxi they put us in was a normal five-seater toyota camry and there was eight adults in the toyota camry um so i spent seven hours sort of pressed against a window and I was like I must really want to see these river dolphins it really was a long way kind of from anywhere and um I got to this place and then we organized next morning to go before dawn um to, to where the river dolphins were seen and so we got a um a rickshaw really early in the morning to to the riverbank hired a boat uh, just for ourselves I think it's, this was 2010 I think the grand total to rent a boat for yourself and a driver was eight dollars mm. uh, US and Cambodia and so we headed out and we'd uh, we picked the driver on the basis that we talked to a couple of them about how they would behave around the dolphins and that was really important to me that I wanted to go out with somebody who at least understood the idea of being kind of you know responsible and um, that's difficult with a language barrier uh, Cambodia luckily the not luckily the 
the colonial language of that's been imposed on Cambodia mm. is French. Look, I can speak French, so we, we managed to get somewhere with that. Um, and we were the only people there. So we had went out into the river and I had decided if I saw a dot in the distance, it would be a win. And um, we went out to the kind of rapids where they were most often seen. The driver cut the engine and immediately a group of three Irrawaddy dolphins oh. appeared next to the boat. Incredibly curious. And I think, you know, I'd seen dolphins in a few places at that point, but only ever in the sea. You, know, you think sea dolphin and yeah. to see them in a river, you know, it was just incredible because it felt wrong, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> it was, it was wonderful. And the, they were so calm, really natural behavior, very inquisitive. And I was thinking, I just felt like I've won the lottery. This is the most incredible mm. thing I've ever seen. And then a calf appeared and spy hut <gasps> literally right next to me, like <gasps> arms, obviously I wouldn't dream of, but I could have touched it if I wanted to. And so the calf was, you know, is as interested in me as I was in it. And, you know, it was just Daniel and I, this lovely lad who was our driver, who was incredibly respectful of the dolphins, was he was enjoying it, was telling me about how, you know, he did this because he, he likes the dolphins, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing. We had about an hour, sort of 40 minutes with the dolphins. We didn't want to stay any longer than that. And it was just us out in the oh. middle of the Mekong River completely silent and just dolphins all around the boat so there was the group of, of three and then the calf um and they were just so confident so calm and it was a pleasure pleasure to, to experience it and i think you know that that population has a lot of challenges that population mm. in the mekong river um and i've often thought a lot about what was the fate of of that calf mm -hmm. that, that i got to see. you know they've, they've had a difficult um you know sort of the 13 years that have passed since i've been there there have been lots of challenges but um a few weeks ago, the, there was a global um, river dolphin treaty was passed. So mm -hmm. countries with 11 countries came together to, to sign this kind of declaration of how they're going to move forward with, with protecting river dolphins. There's the sort of six extant species around the world. And um, so, yeah, I feel like I can I can remember that as as a positive thing, whereas often it's come back to me and I've gone, oh, I don't almost don't want to think about it in yeah. case. Okay, or whatever, which may be the case, but now I sort of, it's like, oh, okay, there is hope again for the future and hopefully for river dolphins, which are just, oh, what a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, they are, they're amazing. Weird looking, yeah. not going to win any contest, but absolutely <laughs> incredible. And just to experience them in that way was, was really, really magic. Oh, that's an amazing story. So exciting. Thank you, Emily. Pleasure. So we're just going to wrap up with a call to action. I know you do, obviously you do a lot of work with the Motion for the Ocean and you do a lot of stuff with Antarctica. So what mm -hmm. do, is this something that you can share that our listeners can do to help river dolphins, penguins, cetaceans, everybody? Yeah, I, so I think the the biggest thing I would ask of, of any listener is to think what is within their specific kind of talent or specific power that they could do that relates to the ocean and so sometimes it can these challenges can feel incredibly overwhelming but mm. 
even if that is just talking to your hairdresser next time you're getting your hair done or maybe going into your children's school or asking them to think about you know what how they deal with the plastic or how they teach the children about you know whatever going into your guide pack something like that that's within your community speaking to your local representative just something to raise awareness and try and push for action there's so many issues out there it can feel like oh gosh what on earth could i possibly do but i think there are things that are unique to each of us so the way i like to think about ocean conservation it's like a big jigsaw puzzle and we're all one piece within it and you need to play your part be your one piece for the puzzle to be completed so i don't want to give you a prescriptive just tick mm. this box do this thing please do you know submit your sightings sign the positions do all that kind of stuff <laughs> but also have a think about what it is that you know that's uniquely you what you can bring to this fight because you know i meet a lot of people and they're like oh i couldn't possibly retrain to be a marine biologist so, don't need it one room just loads of us what we actually need you to do is what's you know within your power your community within your place of work your community of influence what can you do to raise raise awareness and to kind of instigate action against some of these ocean challenges um and you know um, i think you'll probably attach my uh, link to my social media mm -hmm. but i'd love to hear from people with what they come up with what they're involved with if there's anything they'd like me to amplify i'm always happy to do that but um yeah it's uh this fight is going to take all of us. Well, I think that that wraps it up. Is there anything else that you really wanted to say? Uh, apart from thank you and uh, for all listeners to please upload their whale tales because I really love reading them. Really, really. They're so cool. And I think sometimes it can feel like if it's not epic, yeah. it's not worth sharing. Mm -hmm. And that I don't think that's the case. Often the ones that I love the most that like bring a tear to my eye or something that's just happened really near to your house mm -hmm. or you know, it was just fleeting. It's really yeah. cool. I know. I love them. I love them mm -hmm. all. Yeah. Thank you both for what you're doing as well. Thank you. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emily. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode of our podcast. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org and find links to all of our social media handles so that you can drop us a line. You can also head to our website to subscribe to the podcast, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and you can check out over 1,300 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean, we would love to add your story to our library. You can click the share link on our website. You can contact us on social media, whaletales underscore org, or you can email us a voice memo to tell us all about your incredible cetacean encounter. Also, if you'd like to follow Emily, you can check out the links to her Twitter and Instagram and her website are in the show notes. Uh, her Instagram is Marine Biology Life, which is a great Instagram handle. And her Twitter is EG underscore Cunningham. And we hope that you join us next month where we have another special guest slash maybe guests mm. joining us to talk about some cetaceans in yet another part of the world. We're Ooh. just like being global with the podcast over the last few months. Feeling the earth urge to sing where in the world is carmen san diego but <laughs> always, always. Oh, i always am fighting that urge anyway <laughs> finally we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the coast salish peoples and the musqueam squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations as well as the homelands of the tawasan first nation thank you everybody so much thank you emily for joining us and we hope that you all have a whaley great day